Welcome to our podcast, Carefully Examining the Text. And in today's podcast, we want to examine Psalm 49. Psalm 49 can be characterized as a wisdom psalm. There are a lot of features of wisdom psalms, but just a few. Wisdom psalms are usually teaching to man more than they are praise directed to God. And Psalm 49 certainly fits that description. It is teaching given to man. Also, Psalm 49 deals with a persistent theme of wisdom literature. What is the foundation of our life? And the righteous often are mistreated and oppressed by those who are wicked and powerful. And why does this happen? And what is the solution? These are wisdom-type psalm themes and wisdom themes, themes in wisdom literature, and they are themes that arise in Psalm 49. But let's read this section by section and then seek to learn from its profound words. Psalm 49, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the earth, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle upon a harp. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 1, that this is not addressed specifically to Israel. Instead, it is addressed to all peoples, to all inhabitants of the world. Wisdom literature does not generally appeal to the historical facts in Israel's past. But wisdom literature generally appeals to experiences that are common to every man, to all people. And you see it here, all peoples and all inhabitants of the world are his audience. In verse 2, both low and high, rich and poor, together. The expression low and high in the New American Standard Bible actually translates the Hebrew expression sons of man. There's a different word used, a different Hebrew word used for man in each cases. But it seems like the author has some kind of distinction in mind. Low and high, rich and poor, whatever your station in life, you can benefit from this teaching that he's about to give. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. The word meditation is from the family of words, from the same root word that's used back in Psalm 1, verse 2, about meditating on God's word day and night, or in Psalm 2, 1, for the people's devising a vain thing. It's also used in Psalm 37 and verse 30. But here, this subject has been the source of his meditation, 
He has thought about it. He has contemplated. And now his mouth will speak wisdom concerning it. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on a harp. This word proverb is present in the first verse of the book of Proverbs, and it's in the title of the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David. But here in verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on a harp, on the harp. In 2 Kings 3 and verse 15, Elisha asked that a minstrel play while the hand of the Lord came upon him. And here the writer says, I will express my riddle in a harp. So first, he simply calls on people to listen. But what is his major theme? Well, let's read verses 5 through 12. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Verse 7, which I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it may differ some in your versions. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he will cease he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, that the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their own la their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. Wisdom psalm. What is the situation for writing this wisdom psalm? Obviously, some were putting confidence in their wealth, in the abundance of their riches, in verse 6. Also, we see that apparently these people who were rich were getting rich by mistreating those who were poor. Verse 5 asks, Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, some who are foes have surrounded him, they have mistreated him, and they have grown, grown prosperous as a result of him. Just as verse 5 asks, why should I fear these people? Verse 16 will say, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. So apparently, this weak, poor person who is writing this psalm, who has been mistreated by the rich, is afraid at the prosperity of the wicked. But God is emphasizing that he is not getting away with his crime, but he will be brought down to the grave like everyone else. Riches may buy him out of a lot of trouble in life, but they will not purchase his soul from death. 
Now, in verse 7, or in verse 6, when some trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, that is where they find their security. These words, trust and boast, are used in the book of Psalms to emphasize that God is the proper object of these verbs. God is the subject of our trust. God is the one in whom we boast, whom we praise. God is the one who is worthy of attention. But this text emphasizes to us that these people are ones who aren't putting their trust in God. They aren't boasting in Him, but instead they are trusting and they are boasting in their riches. And the Bible is showing the futility of that. If you boast in your riches, if you trust in your wealth, it's not going to stop you or those who are near to you from dying. Some of your versions in verse 7 says no man can redeem his brother. Other versions, instead of having the word brother say, yet, surely, no man can by any means redeem. But the difference between brother and the word yet or surely in Hebrew is just the vowel pointings, not the Hebrew consonants. But whichever translation we take, the meaning is clear and plain. The meaning is you cannot redeem yourself, you cannot redeem those near you by a large amount of money and prevent yourself from dying. You can't pay God a big enough ransom to stop death from coming your way. In Leviticus 25, beginning with verse 25, we see that a person might become rich and have to sell himself to slavery or sell an important piece of a family land. If he prospers himself, he can redeem himself. Or a brother can redeem him from his trouble. Money can buy you out of a lot of problems. It can buy you out of a debt as far as land or a debt that causes a person to go into slavery. But it can't buy your soul out of death. No man can by any means redeem Or give to God a ransom. For the redemption of his soul is costly that he should cease trying. In verse 9, the Bible talks about he's not going to live on eternally and prevent himself from seeing the pit. In verse 10, for he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and senseless alike perish. A good footnote beside of this section of verse 10 is Ecclesiastes 2 in verses 12 through 17. In that section, the man sees that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. But he realizes that there is one fate common to them all. Whether a person is wise or foolish, they're going to die just the same. And this passage says the same thing. The wise men, the stupid men, the senseless men, they all die. 
And verse 10 also states, they leave their wealth to others. Ecclesiastes 2 verses 18 through 23 talks about when all die, they leave their wealth to others. And who knows whether that one they leave their wealth to will be wise or foolish. Many echoes of Ecclesiastes right here in verse 10. The New American Standard states in verse 11, their inner thought is that their houses are forever. These rich who put their trust and their hope in riches, the Bible says their inner thought is that their homes are forever. They think this is going to go on indefinitely to eternity. Now, if you have the ESV or some other version, the idea is that their graves are their eternal home. There's a difference in the translations here at this particular point. But uh, what I would stress is that the Hebrew text has their inner thoughts remain forever. The Septuagint and Syriac have their grave is their eternal home. But both, again, emphasize the same idea. The rich presume that their land ownings offer unshakable security only to discover that their permanent home is the grave. Tony Ash. Another writer says, The wealthy person of this world has devoted much time to constructing for themselves a solid lodging place in this world. But the reality is that the grave would be their only permanent lodging place. That was Peter Craigie. Their inner thought or their graves are their eternal home, their dwelling place to all generations They call lands, verse 11 says, after their own names. A king might conquer a land or a country and name it after himself. This is what these rich men do in the vain hope that they can make their name perpetually remembered. But their name is only remembered as it's etched in their grave. Verse 12 is a refrain. It appears largely, again, not identically, but largely in verse 20. In verse 12, man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast who perish. Man in his pomp will not endure. The word that is used for endure actually has the idea of spending the night. It's used in Genesis 19, in Judges 19, of of offers, come, spend the night in our house. Don't spend the night in the square. The idea behind the use of this word, man in his pomp will not endure, is that the grandeur and the glory of these people last only a night. It lasts a night, and like the beast, they will die. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 8 through 20, 18 through 21 emphasize that the beast die, just like man. All of us will perish. This verse says the same thing. Death 
is waiting for each of us. Where does our security lie? If our security lies in the abundance of our wealth, in our riches, in our lands, named after ourselves, that's a vain hope. But while verses 5 through 12 have emphasized that all die, whether they're foolish or whether they're wise, verse 13 through 15 began to emphasize a distinction. In verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words, Silah. As death they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. As stated before, verses 10 through 12 emphasize that we're all going to die and no man can redeem his life, verses 7 through 9. But here there is a distinction between the foolish and the righteous, between the upright and the wicked. The Bible emphasizes that death shall be their shepherd, verse 14. Death shall be the shepherd of those who are foolish. This is a sad parody of Psalm 23, verse 1, where the Lord is our shepherd. And Psalm 23, 4, where the Bible tells us this shepherd leads to the valley of the shadow of death. But here, death shall be their shepherd. God leads the sheep through the darkest valley. Death leads the sheep to slaughter and to Sheol. Like dumb sheep on their way to the slaughter, they don't know where they're going. Peter Craigie says, while they're grazing in the pleasant pastures of life, thinking that all is well, death is actually grazing on them. I think that's a good quote. The Bible emphasizes that death is their shepherd. In Sheol, their form will be consumed. They will wake up in the morning in verse 14, a phrase used in Psalm uh, 17, 15. They will wake up in the morning to find the upright rule over them. But in contrast to the fate of the wicked, the Bible says in verse 15, God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Now, it was very popular at one time to affirm that the Psalms have no affirmation of life after death. Now, recognize in some Psalms that you don't see that clear affirmation. Psalm 88 is a good example of that. But here in Psalm, Psalm 49, verse 15, notice God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. A form of this word redeem, a redemption, was used in verse 7, twice in verse 7, and then in verse 8. And in verse 7 and verse 8, the text is emphasizing that no one can redeem. No one can ransom our soul. But in verse 15, God can redeem. But God 
will redeem my soul, and he will receive me into glory. And this word receive is used in Genesis 5 and verse 24, where the Lord received Enoch. He walked with God and the Lord took him. The Lord received him. The Lord took him. It is used for the Lord taking Elijah in 2 Kings 2, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, 9, and 10, all from 2 Kings 2. And it's used in Psalm 73, verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. What is my point? All of these texts emphasize a hope of an afterlife. In contrast to the wicked who have death as their shepherd, who are appointed for Sheol and whose form will be consumed in Sheol, God will redeem my life from the power of Sheol. There's a good article available to all who have the internet, a T.D. Alexander, on the Psalms and the afterlife. If you type that in and read it, I think you'll be profited. God will raise him to eternal communion with his maker. Look at verse 16. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. If this psalm was indeed written to poor people suffering at the hands of the rich who are terrified at the prosperity of the wicked, the Bible is saying, do not be afraid. In verse 17, when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not descend after him. Do you know the word carry in verse 15 is from the same word receive? In verse 15, it's from the same word in Hebrew. In verse 15, God is receiving our soul, but in verse 17, we are not carrying anything with us. God receives our soul, but we don't carry anything with us to eternity. His glory will not descend after him. Verse 18, though he lives, when he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the gathering of his fathers. They shall never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Now, the refrain of verse 20 is very similar to the words of verse 12. a matter of fact, in the Septuagint translation, they are identical. But in the Hebrew text, they are not identical. And you notice in most English translations, in verse 12, man in his pomp will not endure. In verse 20, he's still without understanding. Not only will he not endure, will his wealth, is, his wealth not endure, he is without understanding. He doesn't fail. He doesn't understand the reality of na the nature of reality. He doesn't understand what is real, what is true, what is right. He doesn't understand that. Now, there's much more could be said about that psalm. But let's talk about Jesus in this psalm. First of all, in verse 4, 
The writer says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. We pointed out that that word proverb in the Hebrew text is used in the book of Proverbs for the title of the book of Proverbs and many times scattered throughout that book. The word in the Greek translation is the word parabole. And I am supposing that most of you already know how that's translated in the New Testament. It's translated parables. And it's used to describe the teaching of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that here the writer says, the sons of Korah say, I will incline my ear to a proverb. And the word used for that is parabole. When the New Testament uses that for Jesus' teaching, you know what my point is? My point is that Jesus is being presented as a wisdom teacher. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a priest. And Jesus is a teacher of profound wisdom as well. He is a wisdom teacher. And in his parables, he warns against trusting in wealth and putting our confidence in wealth. In Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. In Luke 12, verses 22 through 34. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. The Bible warns us against laying up treasures in heaven. Our wisdom teacher, Jesus, teaches. Jesus, those words. A second way that this psalm relates to Jesus, notice in verse 9, the Bible says he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. And I know the ESV has in verse this verse, he should not see the pit. He should not see the pit. It's the same wording used in Psalm 16, verse 10. He should not see the pit. He should not see the pit. He should not undergo decay. In the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the Old Testament, this word translated decay here is used six times in the New Testament. All of them in Acts 2 and in Acts 13. And all of them quoting Psalm 16 and emphasizing how David underwent decay, but Christ did not undergo decay. No man can live on eternally that he should not undergo decay, but Jesus did. Jesus did. And Jesus can redeem our soul. He can redeem our soul from death. You can't buy enough money to purchase your redemption in verses 7 and 8. But I want to tell you, God redeemed our soul through Jesus. Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10. Just as Ephesians 4 says, But God, when all looked hopeless and we were absolutely helpless, the text says, But God. You see the same thing here in Psalm 49, 15. When all looked helpless and hopeless, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. Where is your security? Where is your trust? If your trust is in wealth, that is a house that is destined to collapse. 
If your hope is in God, He can redeem your soul. God bless.